Hello, and welcome to Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is committed to the principles of the new evangelization and faithful to the magisterium. Our mission is twofold, to inform and equip Catholics for the new evangelization and to communicate the gospel to people outside of the church. We are brand new, but part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, whose mission is to advance human flourishing through engaging conversation, thought-provoking discussion, and premier sound design. If you'd like to check out any of our other shows, we talk about pop culture, philosophy, and even sports, head to vernacularpodcast.com. If you're interested in supporting our mission, please visit patreon.com slash VPN for Vernacular Podcast Network. That's patreon.com slash VPN. And because Creedal Catholic is so new, we would really benefit from you rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Please head there and let us know what we can do better. And now, onto the show. My guest today, I'm very excited to talk to him. I'm a big fan of his podcast called Clerically Speaking. He is the Canadian half of the two hosts of that podcast. So look up Clerically Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. But my guest today, Father Harrison Ayer. He is the pastor of Holy Family Notre Dame Parish in Port Alberni, Canada. He's also a doctoral candidate in theological anthropology at Merrillville Institute, which is part of the Archdiocese of Birmingham. And that is not Birmingham, Alabama, but Birmingham, UK. And as I understand it from Father Harrison, that was founded by the blessed John Henry Newman, whose canonization is fast approaching in October. So lots of exciting stuff going on in Birmingham, and that's where Father Harrison is getting his doctorate. So uh, also, by the way, Father Harrison is one of the nine priests that Epic Pew says you need to follow on Twitter. So if you if you have Twitter accounts, and unlike me, uh, you have not found Twitter to be corrosive to your soul, go ahead and follow, follow <laughs> Father Harrison there, at FR Harrison. But Father Harrison, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Awesome. Thanks, Dax. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much. I wanted to have you on because I've heard you on Clerically Speaking talk about Hans Urs von Balthasar. And mm-hmm. I think that name conjures up some strong emotions for people on both <laughs> sides of certain theological debates. Right. But I, I've seen his name referenced in a lot of the writings of Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger slash Pope Benedict XVI, one of my, mm-hmm. uh, certainly a modern day hero, one of my all-time church heroes, really. I, I love everything mm-hmm. that I've ever read by Pope Benedict. And uh, I thought there's, there, must, there must be something to this Balthazar guy, but I hadn't read much Balthazar. And so I mm-hmm. thought where where to go but pick up perhaps the most controversial thing he's ever written <laughs> and that is uh the ignatius press edition of dare we hope that all men be saved with a short discourse on hell and uh as a uh, as a as a baltazar fan i thought you'd be a, a perfect person to sort of help me <laughs> help me digest and break down some of this stuff because it's a pretty it's a pretty complicated argument and and really it flies in the face of so much that i have been taught throughout my christian life uh, I mentioned to right. you just before I hit the record button and my listeners, I think, no, I'm a convert to Catholicism and uh, growing up as a Protestant, it was pretty clear that, um, you know, there were some people who were destined for hell and some people that were mm-hmm. destined for heaven. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, that specifically obviously is a view that is common in uh, reform circles that hold the predestination, but even outside of those circles in Protestantism, I think there is uh, a, an unspoken or a spoken assumption that mm-hmm. some are going to hell and some are going to heaven. <laughs> and, right. um, Baltazar very clearly in this book says, Whoa, hold up a second. Uh, can we hope that all men right. be saved? And I think um, I want to I want to hear your thoughts on this in just a moment. But the obvious criticism here is that Balthazar is is advocating for and please uh, please correct my uh, Greek here, but um, apoca, 
apocata stasis is that right apocata yeah, stasis yeah, so something like that. okay so <laughs> universal reconciliation right that baltazar yeah. is saying hey guys don't worry about it we are all going to go to heaven it's all going to be great um that is a charge that i think is ultimately unfair and baltazar is very conscious of this charge and um the the book dare we hope is a uh, is a longer form response to some of his critics, I think, uh, on these ideas. But he says, no, I'm explicitly not advocating uh, universal reconciliation. Uh, what I am saying is that we are permitted the theological virtue of hope with respect to the destination of mankind. Um, and Bishop Barron, in the, he writes the foreword to this ed- edition of the book that I have, the Ignatius Press edition, and he says, he also tries to sort of exonerate Balthazar of this charge and say he's not advocating uni- universal reconciliation. Um, and he also says that that for people who say if we if we talk about this we're going to damage our missionary efforts, um, Bishop Barron says that's ridiculous because you know God I think he says the God of the Bible delights in secondary causes, and <laughs> this hope you know this if that's we such a if, if phrase yeah if if we <laughs> if we permit our if we permit ourselves to hope and yeah. and uh, build up the theological virtue of hope that all men be saved, then this will manifest itself in the outworking of evangelization and building up the church and bringing in all of mankind into mm-hmm. the love of God and in, into the reconciliation mm-hmm. offered by Christ. So right. that's that's my my sort of um, quick quick understanding of of the of the Balthazar argument and how he right. responds to his critics. I think for me also, a helpful way to think about this book was um, when I, when I, when I sort of, my gut instinct was to challenge the core thesis was really Balthazar breaks it down into a simple syllogism. I think he says, basically um, if we cannot say for certain that any one person is in hell, right? Cause the church canonizes saints and says this person's mm-hmm. in heaven, but we don't, we don't, you know, anti canonize people and say this person's <laughs> in hell. Right. So if we, yeah. if we can't say for certain that any one person is in hell, then how can we say for certain that, anyone is in hell, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but what are your thoughts on that? Did I, did I accurately capture sort of the, the thrust of this yeah, book? I and- so. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when people are talking around the word hope too, right. There's like when I was kind of rereading it today and looking at, and over the past couple of days, just looking at it, the distinction that popped into my head is that for Balthazar, hope is about a possibility, not a certitude. Right. And I think if you can understand it that way, then it has to be possible because and for him, it's just simple. It's like first Timothy two, four. Right. We pray for the salvation of all men and so on and so forth. Like he says, it's in scripture. So why can't like, why is this a problem? He's always very careful. But he's, he's, he's trying to answer a few problems with this question. Right. Because the other question that comes with this, it's the dynamic between sin and grace. What is more powerful? If we're going to say that sin has this ability to absolutely conquer grace, then our God is a weak God. <laughs> right? right, right. And that doesn't bode well to the God of Revelation who does, who shows himself to be able to conquer the powers of sin and death. And the cross is the greatest manifestation of this power. Um, so you have that as well. And then for him too, it then is the, so you have the question too then of if we have to hope, which is kind of like an objective reality, like it's, it's something that we can yearn for, but it may not be subjectively realized if that makes sense. Um, so then he has that question. Okay. Then what is the relationship between divine and human freedom and all this? And that's why I think too, it's important with Balthazar, he never writes in a vacuum and you need to not, you can't just read this book to understand his whole argument. Really. You need to read his trilogy. You need to read his Christian state of life and stuff like this. Uh, I always like to throw out this anecdote. If you ever read the Christian state of life is his book on, um, on, um, 
Christian vocation. It's kind of like a theological extrapolation of Ignatius' spiritual exercises. And in that book, he actually says at the end that those who hear, who receive the objective call to a um, to the life of election it, uh, through religious life or priesthood, and they ch- actively choose against it, they're probably going to hell. Right. He that's, he says that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, that doesn't sound like the universal salvation person that everyone's talking about. And I think it's always important about that, that you need to kind of look at, at him in that larger context. Uh, you need to kind of, he, he writes like his bibliography, the, the books that he has two, it's two volumes that covers his bibliography of writing. So there's a, he wrote a lot. Yeah, and no you kidding. Need to kind of compare and contrast he doesn't just explore this idea here, explores it elsewhere. And I think it's just always important to keep that in mind that he's exploring this question specifically in this one book, but it's not, it's not the definitive look at the whole question for him. And I think he's pretty clear about that as well. One of the things that struck me is, is that just to your point about context, there's a whole chapter of this book called the new Testament where he Mm -hmm. sort of compares and contrasts many passages in the new Testament, Mm -hmm. some which suggest, right. That, that some will go to be with God and some will, will be in a fiery lake, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or others that suggest that, you know, Christ will draw them into himself, for example. And so there are mm-hmm. some verses in the New Testament that um, that can read as if they are uh, universalist in nature. And there are others that look like they're saying, no, there are definitely some who are going to be in hell and definitely some who mm-hmm. are going to be in heaven. And so mm-hmm. I think for him, the bigger question is, um, is, is yes, you know, how do we avoid falling into, um, and I think you mentioned uh, sort of the certitude, right? How do we mm-hmm. avoid falling into this sin of presumption? He, he quotes um, Joseph Pieper on this point yeah. and says that Pieper talks about two types of hopelessness. One is despair, or we mm-hmm. might equate it to, you know, utter pessimism. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely going to hell. And the other one is, is presumption that, you know, I'm definitely going to heaven. And hope mm-hmm. for her, for Balthazar seems to be a middle ground between the two. Do you think that's fair? Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think um, his... Uh, for him, like, you know, he uses this phrase constantly, right? Under judgment, right? Yes. Yeah. I was going to ask you about this phrase as yeah. well, because he keeps going back to this and it's, it's one that he, he, he keeps sort of throwing back to his critics because his critics yeah. say, you're advocating universal reconciliation. And he says, right. no, I'm not. Uh, what I'm saying is that we are all under judgment. So what does he mean right. by that? Can we unpack that a little yeah. bit? So I, I, I think those two things kind of come together uh, in his chapter on the personal character. That That's the chapter that kind of really helps you understand this, that he says really the, the way you should be worrying about the question is simply what's the destination of my soul. Um, like in some ways he's always trying to bring it back to the personal thing. And so that's the idea of under judgment. We're a man under judgment, which means that we have encountered God's elective love. Which so this is all Ignatius exercises stuff by the way. Okay, the phrase okay. under judgment comes from the exercises. Uh, if you ever do the exercises, you see this stuff coming out. I mean, he actually refers a lot in the book to the meditation on hell from the exercises. Yes, yes, right. Um, so this is the exercises just flow through through all this. But when he's talking about this idea of being under judgment, he's talking about this idea that uh, we encounter this elective love through a life of prayer, uh, etc. And when you encounter that love, it puts um, it puts a responsibility on you to respond to that love. And that's the judgment. That's what he means that we are under judgment. We are constantly under this encounter of love that is asking us to make a choice for it or against it. And to choose for it is to go to be with God and to choose against it is to go against God. Right. So for him, like that's why that's why he means by by hope. You see, 
we really shouldn't in a way we have to hope because we can't actually be concerned with the other people who are under judgment. That's their own. Like, that's not like, it's not like a cane is my, is this my brother's keeper, but more of a, that is between them and God to deal with. Okay. And we are to pray for them in, in their response to God to respond appropriately. But really like our, our kind of existential concern just needs to be personal. Right. And so that's what he's kind of getting at with this idea of under judgment. And so um, with regards to Peeper's thing, it's really this idea that, yeah, I'm responding to the reality of who God is in love. And that brings two possibilities. I can choose I can choose God or I can reject him. So that re, that that um, brings two freedoms together, God's freedom and our freedom. So when you bring those two freedoms into a harmony with each other and a concert with each other, it leaves you from presumption. Because uh, you still have this, you still have a responsibility to say yes to God in all things. Right. And it also removes you from a despair because you recognize, again, like it's actually like it's really trying to affirm human freedom in all this. Uh, God's not going to punish you. Hell is a choice to, to, to uh, reject love. Right. I mean, that's one of his big points. He says hell is really a place created by those who right. choose to reject right. love. Right. Um, so I think if you start to understand it all in that context, then his, that's where he would say hope, hope lies. It, it, it comes from a healthy uh, communion between divine and personal freedom. Well, when you put it that way and you describe his characterization of hope in the context of being under judgment, it sort of makes me rethink the title of the book because Instead of me reading, dare we hope that all men be saved, suggesting a universalism, I almost read right. it as a sort of dare we hope that we be saved even, you know, like dare, right. dare yeah. we, dare we have the presumption exactly. that, that some people I think want to have. Yeah. And the, and that sort of, that sort of presumption is obviously a dangerous thing for a Catholic Christian to have. Exactly. And I, you know, I'd be actually interesting because you, you're mentioning the chapter about the new Testament. Yeah. I had an interesting experience, but I'm curious about your experience with it. He, he mentions the pre Easter and post Easter uh, messages of Jesus. Like the pre Easter Jesus kind of sees this kind of either or, and the post Easter Jesus has this more universalistic character. What did you, uh, what, were, what were your thoughts when you're encountering that? Because I have, like, I have thoughts too, but I'm kind of curious because it, it, that was one thing I kind of struggled with a bit. Yeah, I, I certainly struggled with it as well because I don't, I certainly don't want to think that the, and, and it's not in accordance with Catholic teaching that the pre right. and post Easter Jesuses are two different Jesuses or, right. or that, you know, one has divine understanding and one does not. Um, right. So it, it sort of made me uncomfortable, but I wonder if, uh, and sort of this was my reaction as I was reading it and it's sort of trying to reason through this, you know, the, I think the context is important and the, the post Easter Jesus is the resurrected Jesus yeah. who has been raised up and is drawing all men to himself. And so it changes the context of the message in that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas the pre-Easter Jesus was speaking to a mostly Jewish audience um, in context that a mostly Jewish audience could understand. So, so right. maybe that's the reason for the differences, but I'm not really sure. What about, yeah, what about you? My, you know, just having done like scripture studies and stuff like that in seminary, I was kind of wondering if maybe he was falling a little too much into some historical criticism stuff mm, Yeah, around, around like the two versions of Jesus or something like that. That I mean, I think you can also make a claim that the, this is where his Christology comes into play here a bit. And I want to be careful to make sure I don't like 
fall into heresy with any of it because he doesn't he doesn't fall into heresy but it's just it's very subtle but there is a real difference between the experience jesus's experiences of himself and his relationship to the father going up to the cross and coming back from the resurrection right like like there is there is a real difference there okay um right there has to be i I mean but so i'm wondering if that's maybe what he's playing into that a bit but i just i when i was reading it i was just thinking ah that seems like a little a bridge too far a little push too far. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, I think you can still, he can still make his point without having to push that. But I know I found it a little, you know, he's still a child of his time sometimes. And yeah, this was written in the sixties and seventies when historical criticism was very in vogue. I did find it a little bit uncomfortable. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, actually this, this might be a good, good time to ask you what you know about um, Adrian von Speer, a, uh, I really don't know much about her or about her relationship with Balthazar. I just started reading about this yesterday because um, a priest in my diocese here mentioned mentioned this. But Adrian von Speer, as I understand it, was a German mystic uh, yeah. convert to Catholicism, and she had many um, private revelations. I guess we can call them uh, mystical experiences. She dictated many books, many of them to Balthazar. But Balthazar left the Jesuit order to basically live with her and her husband and sort of be her scribe. And and then he admitted later that most of his theology or much of his theology was based on her experiences. Is that an accurate characterization? It's close. Um, so yeah, he encountered her while he was, if I'm remembering correctly, while he was doing university ministry. Um, and she was, um, yeah, so she's a convert because she was having these mystical experiences even before becoming Catholic. Um, but she entered into full communion with the church and she had a lot of mystical experiences of the saints. Like she has one book called all saints and it's just her, her experience of the inner life of different saints and different great figures of history. It's it's very interesting. Like it's, it's intriguing. Um, so Balthazar, um, became her and he became our spiritual director essentially. Okay. And, um, it's through this that he developed, the sense that he was supposed to start a, a new community, essentially called the Johannine community. And he asked the Jesuits if he could do this as a Jesuit, essentially like he didn't want to leave the Jesuits. Okay. Got it. Um, now he had already made final vows to my knowledge as a Jesuit. They wait till like 15 years later to do their final vows. But um, to my knowledge, he had already made his final vows. Um, and he really prayed and struggled with this because it, and he actually came to his decision. At, he did a 30 day spiritual exercises to come to the firm decision. And it's there that he came to his decision of leaving the, the Jesuits so that he can form fully the, the, the community of St. John though. Like, yeah. So one of the things that's often thrown is like, Oh, he, he lived with them and he would, I, I've heard, I've heard tales of like, she would be, she and her husband would sleep, be sleeping and he'd be sleeping next to their bed so that if she was having mystical experiences in her sleep, he was scribing them. That's all baloney. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, I'm sure he probably did live with them for a bit as he was trying. Cause the other issue he had, once he left the Jesuits, he couldn't find a Bishop who would allow him to be incarnated. Oh, okay. So that, that becomes a little bit of an issue. He, he is a priest who had no faculties. Right, right. So what he does, he starts the community of St. John with her. Um, and yes, it's true. Like her, a lot of, like in his book, Our Task, he talks about his close relationship with Adrian von Speyer. And he says, you can't understand me without understanding her. Interesting. Okay. So, so it is true. Yeah, it is definitely true. Um, but I mean, he's not the only fan. Like John Paul II was also a huge fan of Adrian von Speyer. Uh, they actually had a centenary 
event for for about her at at the Vatican, and he gave a, a keynote address at that event. Um, so, um, and he, they had a close relationship, but it was not like it wasn't like this weird semi-romantic thing or anything like that. It was the relationship of a father to his spiritual daughter. Right. And, and I would say, I mean, my mind didn't go to the semi-romantic possibility right. at all because I, I don't, I wouldn't suspect impropriety just sort of, right. you know, uh, with no, with no facts to support that. Right. But what I did Some think about, do, unfortunately, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's all too easy, especially with our 21st century lens yeah. looking back on these things. Um, but I, where my mind did go is, you know, if to my mind uh, or to my knowledge, um, von Speyer is not. There's not. She's not been canonized or beatified or anything, right? Right. Um, right. And and yet, this man based a lot of his theology on her unique experiences, which mm-hmm. I don't want to discredit them. I, but I don't know. I mean, they are private revelations, and they so, are private revelations. Yeah. And so, and the, to my knowledge, the church hasn't, you know, said these are genuine apparitions or mm-hmm. or whatever. So, I guess to me that suggests that the Maybe not that Baltazar is wrong, but then mm-hmm. he could be wrong. It is, if that right. makes sense, it could be makes sense. But I think okay, let's say he bases off the experiences. But I mean, if when you read Baltazar and you read all his stuff, he has to say this is not a this is not an Ill, this is not a a man who lacked education. Right. That's yeah. That's true for sure. Right. Uh, it's not like the whole, read, it's not like the whole book is just footnoted with uh, von Speyer apparition yeah. number 12, 12, you know. Exactly. So there's two things with this. First, just as a little background on Balthazar a bit more here. If you ever read volume one of Glory of the Lord, which is his theology of the form, um, so it's his theology of beauty. The first hundred, the introduction to the book, which is the introduction to the series is 140 pages. And he's just going through the whole history of aesthetics. And he's like, he's dropping names left, right and center because, and he, he only summarized them about two pages because he's expecting that you've already read all of these people like he has. Right. So he's not like, he's not just, yes, she's very important to him, but it is not coming from a vacuum from him either. I think in a way like her, her visions give a shape to the content that he had received through his education, I guess you could say. Um, the second thing is though, and this is where it kind of tails, t- does tail back into the book a bit is one of the core experiences that von Speyer had was her experience, her mystical experience, uh, vision of Jesus' descent into hell. So what happened with this is she envisioned a suffering Jesus in hell, which is not the way some people have gone about in the tradition. Now, right. there is no magisterial teaching on this. Right. So I think there is legitimate, some people think he, they're a heretic for even suggesting this, but there's no magisterial teaching on this. So um, it's, it's, it's open to theological speculation. And that, but that was like a form of, of real grace for him. And that it's like this ability for God to enter hell into this, like into this immensely powerful way that not even hell could keep out God. So what are the, theological consequences uh, of of that idea. If if God can even descend into hell and conquer it, and in a way, like Balthazar will go on to say, actually, like hell really is created by Christ's descent into shale. Because by descending, in, you know, those who choose to reject the Redeemer remain there, and it's like this eternal um, rejection of the Savior who right, they've right. now seen, right? Before that was just a waiting place. Um, but this is God's power that like he can even go into the depths of God forsakenness 
and not be destroyed by it. That's kind of the, that's from Von Speyer. That's what's kind of going on with this book here, I'd say. Well, that leads to another thing I wanted to talk about, which is yeah. uh, Balthazar talks about various conceptions of hell. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his uh, one of his critics, uh, a man by the name of Hermes, says that God would not have created hell if he did not mm-hmm. intend to people it. You know, and <laughs> yeah. basically, you know, uh, I think to reduce it to more crude terms, why would God make hell if he didn't want to put people there? Um, right. And Balthazar says, that's absurd. You're missing the point entirely. God did not create hell. Exactly. Uh, he, he cites a bunch of people. Um, Catholic and non-Catholic, one of his, uh, one of the people he cites here is C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, um, mm-hmm. who say hell is not made by God. Hell is made by our own desires for something other than God. Exactly. And, and I think that's a really powerful thing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, because the the <laughs> thrust of this book and mm-hmm. the thrust of all theology should be this as well, but I think it comes through especially strongly in this book is the love of God. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to conceive of a God who is love, who would create hell. And so I think this is a good reminder. Hey, God did not create hell. That's never been the teaching of the church, right? That's, um, that's not what it is. We create our own hell by rejecting God. So what does that idea tell us about, about our God? It tells us that it's interesting. So I was actually having a discussion about this with a parishioner today. They came in to ask some questions and I said this, I said, listen, God doesn't force himself on us. Right. Right. So he allows a space for our freedom to reject him. And that's, that's like really the crux of it. Um, I really, I really liked, like if you've ever read the great divorce, like his Lewis's whole vision of hell is really amazing because people just keep on getting further and further yeah. isolated. Right. And, and, and it just gets to another thing. Cause like for, for the Christian, a person is always in relation. Right. So this further isolation is, is that, but I think that's just the thing is this God is someone who God, I mean, this is really a consequence of actually God's love and his creative action that he can't force himself on anyone. He won't force himself on anyone, but he desires everyone to be with him. And, you know, in a way you could say his heart, you could say that God's heart breaks at those who move away from him. Right. Because he wants all his creatures to be with him. Um, but he gives them a space and a, and a, if you will, a quote unquote space to reject that love. I mean, in the tradition, yeah, like you said, there's like all these different, one of the traditions also says that, uh, in a way heaven, hell, and purgatory are all the fires of God's love. It's just experienced differently. Wow. That's right? powerful. Yeah. Yeah. For heaven, it's perfect because you want God's love. You're there. Purgatory is purgative. It's purifying you. And hell, you don't want to be loved by God. Your punishment is that you are loved by God, even though you hate him. Right. Right. And, and you will not turn away from your hate. And guess what? God, subs- uh, all being subsists by, by God's very creative action. Right. So that's the thing. Like you are going to be experiencing God's love in hell because he's upholding your being. And you know that you only exist because of him. Right. And that's your torment because you actually don't want him. Right. But that's all based in love. Like, I, 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 I agree. I think one like I, some of I, some of the stuff I was reading, like the, like Edith Stein's thing and stuff like this around, around love. Right. Like, right. Oof, it's actually incredibly powerful. It is. It's beautiful. And it's challenging. Yeah. And it's like, I, it's just about posing these questions. I think Balthazar, in some ways, he actually doesn't really even give an answer to the question in some ways because he says, I think in some ways for him, it's meant to be a, hum- a mystery. 
Yeah. A bit. Yeah. I think that's there right. Are some things, there are some things we have no right to know about God and his, and his plans, but we have to take God's love seriously. But if we take God's love seriously, like, I guess the way I look at like when you're talking, like he's talking about all these, these saints, these mystics who have these visions of hell and how they would do anything to bar even one soul from falling into there. That is, that comes from love. Right. right? Like, like Catherine of Siena. I just read the yeah. singer Dunset biography of Catherine of Siena mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, he quotes, he, well, Baltzar quotes her at length at several points in this book. But one of those is where she says she would gladly cast herself into hell to save the souls that were there. And that right. is just such an unfathomable thing to me because you, you, she, she is saying, I will take on eternal torment so that these others may live. And, and in doing so, she's emulating the love that God has for each of his children. And that's a really powerful thing to and hear. That's literally what God did for us. Right. Exactly. Which is amazing. <laughs> right. And it, it kind of got me thinking, actually, is because, you know, one of the criticisms that is thrown Balthazar's way about all this. It's like, well, if you, and again, if, if you misunderstand him, but even if you don't misunderstand him and there's this legitimate hope, people always think that it downplays evangelization. Right. Right. And I was actually, this like little insight came to me just before we started recording during adoration. Actually, I was like, Oh, that's a, that makes sense. If it's true that, we ought to hope for and pray for the salvation of all men, then that actually shouldn't lessen our evangelical zeal. It should actually increase it because how does God save men through the church? What are we members of the church? So the only way for God's desire to be fulfilled is if our hearts are like ablaze with God's fiery and desirous love and making it concrete and visible for the whole world to see. Right. So if you actually hope for it, you actually want to go out and bring people to salvation. Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's, that's a great, that's a great point. And it's not just about, I hope this happens. I'll pray this happens. And then I will realize, Oh, what's the mechanism of this happening? It's me. It's not even, Mm -hmm. it's not even, uh, that far removed. I think it's just like what you said. If you hope for that, if you're praying for that, the fire of your heart will burn for that. And then you, and then you will, you will be the missionary to go and bring forth these people. And for me, then when people say that this, form of of Paul Lazar's thing reduces evangel- evangelicalism or in the church it tells me that they don't have a theological sense of the word hope but a secular sense in mm-hmm. other words it's a wishful thinking yeah so i don't need to do anything but hope is always cooperative with human freedom do you think that this that that resonates with me for for several reasons but do you think that this could be understood as an as an antidote to the dual predestination of Calvin, because what you just said about how this sort of um, should sharpen and enhance Mm -hmm. missionary zeal. That's been my experience. I mean, I think since becoming Mm -hmm. a Catholic, I have, God has shown me more about his nature and how his nature is Mm -hmm. love. And that Mm -hmm. does not mean that I've tended more towards a universal, (laughs) a universalist position at all. What it means though, is I think that, you know, books like this, experiences of the saints, the teaching of the church in general has just shown me the love of God in a much more rich and comprehensive and beautiful way than I ever had as a Protestant. And there was a time in my life when I identified as a reformed Protestant. I wasn't particularly well read at that point um, and and things like that. But there was a point at which I would have sort of said I hold loosely, loosely to some sort of, you know, predestination theology. But I think what Balthazar tees up is that the predestination idea dual or single predestination, it really does fall victim to one of these types of hopelessness that, that Pieper talks about either Mm -hmm. presumption 
or despair. Mm-hmm. I think the worst is the duel where, you know, you, you, you're guilty of both, um, with respect to certain persons. But right. the, the beautiful thing about this is that we, if we have this hope and we, we subsist, uh, in, in the theological virtues of, um, faith, hope in this sense and love, mm-hmm. then we won't, we won't fall victim to either of those two things. And we will then be able to better reflect the love of God. Does that make sense? Right. It told, it makes a lot of sense. And I think too, like, cause there is in a way, there's always going to be a predestination in a sense, right? But the predestination is, is rather what God desires for us, right? And yes, what does yeah. God desire for us? Our salvation, right? Right. So we are oriented, we are created for God. Like, so for, it's very interesting, like, um, it, it's, he's actually engaging in, which one is one of the big theological battles of the 20th century is the distinction between, or the relationship between the natural and the supernatural here. Oh, interesting. Is, yeah. That's what, I, that's what's going on at play there. So, cause we are, if we are predestined to something, but I think, and I think that antidote works because it's also like, this is where it gets into metaphysics and the different metaphysical worldviews between like a Calvinist and a, and a, and a Catholic, for example, um, Balthazar, you see, I think for a Calvinist, human freedom is pretty much non-existent. Right. Really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ha- it's, you're, you're kind of like a puppet, really, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it, you have or, to or at least your freedom, freedom is at yeah. least your freedom is so um, carefully and narrowly circumscribed that it's effectively yeah. meaningless, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if that's the case, you see, for, so Balthazar's answer to that form of predestination is to say, well, no, there's actually a way of looking at freedom. And this is where his theodrama is really important in all this. Um, he's saying, no, there's a, there's a concert between uh, human freedom and divine freedom that they're not competing against each other. And God's freedom is not in competition with human freedom. It never is. Right. They're there to be. It, it, we always have to take the garden as kind of the commensurate uh, example of what we're intended to be. And the, and for Balthazar, the place and the heart of all of this is in Christology. Because how does the human nature relate to the divine nature? Mm-hmm. Right. The human nature never limits or 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 um, never limits the divine and the divine nature never overwhelms the human, right? So if that, and there are two freedoms at play. There are two wills in Christ. There's a human will and a divine will. Right. So if that's the case in Jesus, then that's actually meant to be exemplary towards us as to how God is to relate to us about our predestination, which, so it kind of brings you around to then the whole problem with the Calvinist ideas of, two, of dual predestination or even, or however it looks at predestination is that it's bad Christology. Mm. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Balthazar saying, if you're taking Christology seriously, how God relates to the nature of Christ in, we are in Christ, right? Uh, this is Paul's thing, right? We are the new Adam, a new creation, right? We're a new creation. Yeah. It's all in Christ. So if it's, if Christ is the orienting point of understanding how we are to relate to God. And so when you look at that, then it's saying, okay, I actually have a real freedom at play here, which places, I think a greater burden on us in relationship to God's love, but it also, uh, it's also more adventurous. Like that's a love that's exciting and adventurous, yeah. right? It's, it's like, imagine, imagine getting married to someone and said, okay, well, we have to plan out each day. Uh, these are the narrow circumstances of how we can relate to each other. Right. Right. This is how we, this is how intimate we can ever be with each other. These are the certain times we can do this. 
or where you do none of that. I mean, you have basic agreements of life together, but I mean, there's a freedom at play each and every day. And that's the excitement of it all, right? There's nothing, like I always think, I actually almost, I find it funny how much people plan today their engagements. I'm like, no, no, what about the excitement of just the guy out of nowhere getting on a knee? That's more exciting. Yeah. That's more adventurous. And that's what love is meant to be. And that's how God relates to us. And that's how the whole thing around our eternal destiny is meant to be kind of that. That's like an image of how the whole playing between heaven and hell is meant to be. There's a danger because love is dangerous. <laughs> that's beautiful. It's a, it's spoken like a true doctoral candidate in theological <laughs> anthropology too. As, as a, uh, as a, as a theological anthropologist, I do have one more thing I wanted to talk about with you, yeah. which is um, another insight for me. Uh, in this book that is actually originally Ratzinger's, uh, maybe not originally, mm-hmm. but it, it is at least, it was at least one point Ratzinger's and Balthazar sort of imports it to this. He cites Ratzinger's description of the devil as an unperson. And yes. I thought this was really interesting because we often talk about a personal devil and that's a different idea because what we mean is that the, the devil is actually a, a real figure as opposed mm-hmm. to some sort of like generic uh, amorphous, ambiguous evil out there. So mm-hmm. we talk about a personal devil, but what Balthazar and Ratzinger are saying is the devil is really an unperson because, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the quote is he's undergone the dis- the disintegration and collapse of personhood. And right. the reason why I think that matters is, be- is kind of for the same reason that the conception of hell as a rejection of God and the love that he offers is important. It's because God is fundamentally relational and desires mm-hmm. relationship with us mm-hmm. and Christ as the, uh, as the, as the God man embodies mm-hmm. that relationship and that relational uh, re- relationalness in such a mm-hmm. perfect way, but the devil would be the opposite of that. And so just as, you know, being a person and being in human community on my other podcast, we talk about what it means to be human, the art of being mm-hmm. human. It, it involves, it uh, presupposes some sort of relational aspect with respect to another person, at least one other person, but in many mm-hmm. cases it's with many other people and right. the devil is the complete opposite of that. And I think that that poses or sort of sets up hell and the devil as something that is so antithetical to the love that God has for us, which I think is, is just sort of interesting. Yeah. I think so. There's, there's a few things with that. First, it gets us back to the thing from the great divorce, right? This isolationism, right. Of the people in hell, right. They, they are always trying to move further and further away from each other. Um, actually Lewis has this other image of, of the devil. He's kind of like the ashes from a log, essentially like there's oh. nothing left there and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Just, wow. Actually, I think it's in the screw tape letters. Right? Okay. Okay. I've read that. I don't remember that image, yeah. but I have read the screw tape letters. Very good. And there's also in, in the scriptures, uh, when the demons are addressing Jesus, it's often, what would you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Mm. Are you here to destroy us? There is no I, because there is no individuality. There is no personhood left. They've destroyed any personhood in them. And so they can only see themselves as this like collective now that, and not, it's like an anti-communion. Right. Um, it's like the opposite of what God's communion looks like. And the only um, thing they can, they can conceive of is that Jesus is there to destroy them because destruction exactly. is their only heuristic. Right, exactly. And that's what the devil always is trying to convince us. God God wants to destroy you. Right. He wants to kill you. He wants to though that thing you love, if you give it away to him, you're not you're gonna be less human. Right. right. That, that's what the devil is trying to get at us. So but yeah, I think what you're getting at is, is at the heart of it, right? It's this idea that to be human is to be in relation, that we are created for relation. That's John Paul II's theological anthropology. It's it's the Trinitarian communion that if we are made in God's image, 
then that image is a communion of persons, which means that man is 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 not just found in, in myself, but my, I can only find my I in relationship to a thou. Yeah, That's the only way, right? Right. I have to be addressed and I have to address in order to be truly myself. Imagine if you were born in an isolating chamber and never interact with anyone for any of life. That would be hell. Really, we would see that as hell. We have a desire for communion because... We are actually built to be in relationship. And so the devil is an unperson. And I would actually even kind of go so far as to say that those who choose hell in a way become unpersons as right. well. Right. I think I think they're sort of choosing their own disintegration, right? Exactly. Because they're detaching themselves from the source of relationship. Exactly. So then you could actually argue. I'm going to stretch this a little bit here, but I think you can then argue in that sense for universal salvation, in the sense that those who choose to be a truly human person in relationship to God will choose that community. And those who reject it become unpersons. Oh yeah. In a way. Okay. And so their, their hope is gone. I mean like Balthazar, it's it, it, what I found intriguing. It's, it's where I'm going to wrestle with it more because it's all these sayings of the saints, especially Edith Stein's thing. Yeah. Is, is this almost like this proposition that it is possible maybe that even after death, even after someone has chosen hell, God won't stop pursuing them. And that's the one I'm like, wow, that's, that's hard to swallow. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Because that does seem to, uh, fly in the face of magisterial teaching that death is right. the final, the final moment. The right. Final right. So that, that's the only part I was just like, ah, I don't know, but I don't think he's making that argument. He's just, he's proposing this stuff for thought, right? right. He's not, he's, he's actually incredibly careful because he's a man of the, he's a man of the church. He's a man of the church. I mean, Ratzinger was sent to do his funeral by John Paul II. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Did you know that he was supposed to be a cardinal? Yes, I did know that. Yeah. He he never wanted it. He 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 tried to refuse it. And he, John Paul II finally said, listen, you need to be a cardinal so that everyone can know that your theology uh, is good for the church. Okay. Got it. So he finally said yes. And he died two days before he was yeah. named a cardinal. So he got his wish too. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, yeah. I think I think Ratzinger did a lot to sort of um, maybe rehabilitate is the wrong word, but at least bring into the yeah. public view and sort of um, give uh, give the church's blessing to a lot of Balthazar's yeah. work. Yeah, because I mean, for years when he started St. John's Community, he, this is why he wrote a lot was because he had to he had to publish books to support himself because he had no other source of income. Yeah. So, um, but I think it's actually a real blessing with all he did. He's, there's a lot to read on him. Yeah. Well, uh, that's actually the final question I have for you. And I do want to encourage our, our listeners to read this book. It's, I recommend the Ignatius mm-hmm. edition. It's been, it's been good. And it, mm-hmm. it also includes a short discourse on hell also by Balthazar and the forward is by, uh, Bishop Robert Barron. Um, it's good. It is challenging. Um, listen to father Harrison's words on this. I think it's been really helpful for me. So thank you, father Harrison. I would also say, um, you know, don't, don't adhere in any way to universal reconciliation because that, that doctrine and that idea is dangerous to evangelism and And it it is antithetical to the teaching of the church. Yeah. It is heretical. Yeah. So, so don't adhere to that. Um, and so just be careful in reading this book that you don't read that out of it because that's not what Balthazar is saying. So that'd be my, my caution for Mm -hmm. the listener who wants to go pick this up. I would say read this, uh, and take it to prayer because these Mm -hmm. ideas are challenging. Um, many of them are beautiful, especially some of the meditations on love by, um, father mentioned, uh, Edith Stein. 
St. Catherine of Siena is quoted in this at mm-hmm. length as well, and some other saints. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of good stuff to commend it in here. But Father, you mentioned uh, that you should sort of read this in context, and so I would ask you um, any other recommendations of Balthazar's work, or um, just other other works that you think would be good to read alongside this, uh, even if they're not written by Balthazar. Yeah. So the first Balthazar book I always recommend is um, is Christian State of Life. It's a beautiful book on vocation and discernment. And it really kind of gives you a a good sense of his, a lot of the stuff that he pursues in a lot of his other works is really kind of condensed in that book. Um, I mean, I know Matthew Levering has written a little uh, introduction to his um, trilogy. Okay. I I think A. Nichols is really good on summarizing Balthazar stuff. So those are two books. Those are some works. Balthazar is hard. If you if you've not read much theology, I would hesitate to say go head first into <laughs> yeah, Balthazar. just dive right in. Just dive right in. Yeah, I would start off with some introductions to help you understand the context a bit more. Yeah, and I actually I would re- I, although I will ex- recommend two essays by Balthazar that I think anyone could read. Um, the first one is a little essay he wrote called "Theology and Sanctity." Okay, and. I read that in my first year of seminary. I was telling you before we recorded and this, this, that essay changed how I saw theology that he says, theology and holiness ought to go hand in hand that only truly saints can do theology. And the other one is the, the, the fathers, the medievals and us. And he kind of does this whole overview of the history and pursuit of theology and where we've kind of come to at the time. It becomes a bit of a critique of neotomism, but he's trying to reintroduce the idea of what theology has been in this tradition and how it's meant to be applied and done. And it's a very good essay. So I recommend those two essays, and I think those are accessible to anyone. So that's Theology and Sanctity and uh, the the Fathers, the Medievals, and Us? Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. I'll, I'll find yeah. those and include links to them in the show notes. Yeah. If it's not Theology and Sanctity, it's Theology and Holiness. It's one of those two. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Um, Something holy. Okay, <laughs> great. The uh, Father, the final thing I like to ask people who come on Credo Catholic is, uh, what saint has been occupying your, your thought as of late? As of late? Uh, oh my gosh. Hmm. A lot always do. Um... Do you know what? In the end, the man who always haunts me—he's been—he's my patron saint and everything—is Saint Augustine. Okay, I—I I love his theology. I—I've always been a big fan of him, partially because I've been reading a lot of Ratzinger lately. So he talks a lot about Augustine, right? So that helps as well. But Augustine's just the man who always is—is is hovering. So him, and obviously our blessed lady. Yes. All right. Yeah. Right. She, she's always she's always there. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Well, yes. thank you so much. Thanks so much for no joining us on Credo Catholic. I'd love to have you back on some other time. Maybe we can d- dive into another theologic work. Maybe we'll go with uh, go with something by Rossinger this time. Oh, that'd be fun. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Father. Have a good night. God bless you.